John? Jimmy. How are you? <laughs> How are you? I'm sorry about the technical difficulties here. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you fine. And when you combine two guys' ages and it equals almost 200, uh, we'll have some technology <laughs> issues. We will. Well, thank you for your patience. This is Jim English, and welcome to my podcast. And uh, I appreciate everybody listening here. And we have a special guest. His name is Johnny Griffin, and we ran through this technology once before, and we got about a third of the way done, and it cut us off. So we're going to be doing some repetition, so bear with us. So John, what we're going to talk about is the Corona Del Mar football team in Newport Beach, and it is an amazing story, and Johnny Griffin is central and germane to the story of their success. And by the way, uh, this for the the German listeners, because we do have some German listeners that I pointed out in the first time we tried to do this, and uh, is that this is football, American football, not not soccer. So, Johnny, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Okay, Jim. Uh, John known Jim English for 30 plus years anyways and we first met playing basketball where Jim used to drop that feathery baseline jumper in the Newport Beach City Leagues and I was fortunate enough to uh when football team I coached uh Matt English Jim's son and all his pals were on that first team so that's how the two of us became acquainted so here we go so you know, this is a success story unparalleled in Corona Del Mar football history. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about, I couldn't dive too far into the archives. From what I could see, I got, what I did is I started the 2004 season and 2004 through 2009. Okay. The C, the uh, Corona Del Mar Sea Kings we're 36 and 31, which isn't bad, it's a little better than mediocre, 56% winning percentage. During those years, they had one league title, no CIF titles. Now, John got involved with the, the team, the Corona Del Mar team. He started coaching, I believe, back in 2007, right? <sighs> I don't, uh, I, I can't tell, I don't even remember days or years they were. Jim, it's funny. I just go by what classes they were and what kids okay. were in each class. Okay. So, so whenever, uh, whenever Matthew started his freshman year of high school. Okay. Well, since you started, okay, this is the record. Once again, a 56% winning percentage, one league championship. Okay. From since you started, and and I have that down as 2010. It was the Sea Kings have gone 120 and 17. So we are talking a 88% winning percentage. So we are talking an increase in the proficiency and the success of the Corona Del Mar Sea Kings is huge. And it, you know, I know you're a modest guy, John, and I know you don't want to talk about yourself too much, but this success 
is absolutely coincides with your arrival. And let me continue with the with the accolades here. So once again, one league championship since you got here. It's seven league championships, four CIF championships. And by the way, CDM was started, CDM football started in, in 1972. And from 1972 to 2011, they had two CIF championships. Since then, they've had, they've had four CIF championships, seven league titles, two state titles, and a bunch of CIF semifinals. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for this, but it does coincide with your arrival. So, Joe, let's talk about how you got involved initially, because you're not a professional coach. Correct. Uh, far, far from it. And I'm, so I'm going you... to rudely interrupt you, Jim. And I, I've said this before. I'll say it now and I'll say it in the future. Good coaching. Uh, the key to good coaching is really having good players. And I'm, I'm not being falsely modest. It's true. We've had some great, great, great athletes come through. And as soon as that high school and that program is able to attract and retain the local talent, that's really, really when they took off. And I think that's a tribute to a, the parents that just happened to come through. I think we, we caught a little lightning in a, in the bottle. And then obviously when Dan O'Shea and Kevin Hedig arrived with, with Scott Meyer, they built such a positive culture, such a winning culture um, and a culture of, of character and accountability that everybody bought into it. So um, we were able to retain real good local talent that didn't need to, to go to another school because it, uh, everything you wanted in the high school experience, it was free and it was a mile and a half away from where all these kids live. So um, you baked all that to really good recipe for some winning formulas. Yes. And I mean, you're talking about Corona Del Mar high school, which I believe has 14, 1500 high school students competing with the big boys now. Yeah, we're playing, we're playing teams, Jim, that have, you know, 3,500 kids. And we're going to be at about 1,400 this year in the four uh, classes, freshman through senior year. I mean, that's astounding success, you know, considering, you know, the size of the school. And, I mean, you know, you're, you know, we are beating teams like the, you know, we're beating teams that and competing in leagues where there's three times the size of us. Yeah, it's, it's just it's crazy. A, it's astounding. Yes. And, and that's a testimonial. I mean, it takes everybody to build. You know, I hate to use that. It takes a, a what do they say, a community takes a to village. build. build. Yeah. yeah, it takes a village. Well, this, I mean, this took a whole city and everybody pulled together to get this. You're right. The parents, the coaching, you know, the commitment of the kids. And, you know, I mean, this is traditionally, CDM has traditionally had success in volleyball being a beach community and in water polo and swimming, but never has this ever happened in the history of CDM football, this sort of sustained success. This is astounding. And, I want, is astounding. The, and I want the audience to realize the, the magnitude of the accomplishment. It's not only, like you said, catching lightning in a bottle. It's sustained excellence 
year over year, kids passing down the torch, you know, from seniors to juniors to sophomores and developing such a culture, a winning culture. It's, it's remarkable. But so John, tell us how you got into coaching, because I know that you're a vice president for Cushman Wakefield. We'll put in a plug for that uh, since you worked there and they afford you the time. How did you get into coaching? You know, I actually have a very interesting story about how I got into coaching and there's nothing more off-putting than when a guy talks about himself. So uh, are you going to make me talk about myself, Jim, or can we talk just about how you got into coaching? Okay. Um, I played high school football for a program up in Northern California in the high school and there um in i ran into a really unique situation we had an unbelievable program and an unbelievably great coaching staff and um when my sophomore my junior and my senior year when i was playing quarterback our varsity coach had garrett's disease and so he unfortunately and a wonderful guy and he was a, a famous famous athlete from the hawaiian islands and he, uh college football at michigan state and he was at this little school up in northern california con- uh, contracted Lou Gehrig's disease. And so I, as I was playing for him um, and he physically, his, his ability to communicate had started to de- deteriorate. I would spend the week with him and we became close and I knew his offense very well. And at a point where he couldn't talk audibly, so he would just move his mouth and I could read his lips and I could read from a, uh, far away and uh, we were, I, I was intimately involved with game planning. I was intimately involved with, with play calling. And we were one of the first high school programs that would hand signal in um, play. It took time. He could, I could read his lip. We could get a pop just because I knew what he was thinking so well. So it, for three years, I had an MBA in offensive football from one of the most successful coaches in Northern California and just his physical circumstances led me to have this unique situation. And I was 15, 16 years old. I didn't know any better. I just thought that's what you did is go over to the coach's house and spent Saturday and Sundays and watched film and help train the game plan would be. He was, um, he continued to coach while I was in. And when I went to UCLA, we were on the quarter system. So I spent all summers helping him and uh helping the his lead assistant was is a dear friend of mine over for him but we ran the summer program and then i would coach the first four five six games in the month of september before i went back to college so as an 18 19 year old i was coaching a pretty high level high school program and when down to southern california i just didn't have enough time to do it but it's something that i kind of always wanted to get back into and when I got involved with the freshman program, the numbers were down and I'd been asked for about three or four, five years previously to get involved. But I, I finally had time and was set in my career where I could take the afternoons off. And that's my long, boring, myopic story, Jim. Well, I, uh, God, it's all of a sudden become gut wrenching. And, you know, when we were preparing for this podcast, which, you know, there's virtue and spontaneity. Well, this is part of the 
the spontaneity and it said at what stage of Lou Gehrig's disease did he have ALS when you got there? Gosh, great when question. You... So he was walking my freshman year. Uh-huh. His sophomore year, he was in a golf cart, um, kind of not walking, and but he could talk fairly well. My uh, my junior year, um, he was for the most part physically not able to do much, and I believe my senior year he had an emergency tracheotomy and was on a, a ventilator, um, and. He had a really dedicated wife who would drive him in a van. I remember they had a, a really kind of a special purpose van and they would get him down in a wheelchair and he would coach from a wheelchair. So he, unfortunately I saw it right in front of me and it's a, it's a horrible, horrible disease. Uh, and he really made the best of his life at that time. So his, his name, Jim is Wiedemeyer. And if you Google Charlie Wiedemeyer, there was a book on him. There was a movie that they made. We had 60 minutes out at practices. It was here. It was, uh, I mean, it was a really, really in California. God, my eyes are welling up. So you, you know, I'm so empathetic for you and sympathetic. So you watched a man that you loved and admire dissipate physically right in front of your eyes as a teenager yes yeah it was heavy it was heavy but again i was too stupid to to know anything i was just trying to play football and run around and have some fun and i really really he he taught me how to watch film he taught me how to game plan and i was you know i, I again i had an mba in football as a 16 year old it was great and we had a lot of laughs he was a very funny guy and how long did he last after that Boy, he was, he, he, I bet you he lived another 15 years. And he had to step away from the head coaching duties, but he always had his fingerprints all around that. God, you have to, I mean, just the admiration for somebody to continue doing that, you know, coaching young men, developing young men, imparting his knowledge like you, as opposed to, you know, withdrawing into an abyss of self-pity. Is, yeah, he, uh, he, he definitely was really, really inspirational. And looking back, the story's even uh, more intense. Again, at the time, I was 16-year-old. Wow. Wow. That is an amazing story. So yeah, it, you it took, really so is. You, is there anything else you would like to say about that? About what was his name again? I apologize. Charlie Wiedemeyer. So, would you like to say anything about Coach Wiedemeyer that you haven't already said before we no, move on? I, I, no, we, I had a great relationship with him. I also learned he, he had a lead assistant who was the most unselfish guy in the world. His name was Butch Catalico. And Butch did a lot of heavy lifting. And um, it was really really phenomenal how how selfless butch catalico because he was an unbelievable football he took uh he elevated the a program even higher but he was i, I learned how to be on a staff by being go 
you know, he didn't care who got the credit. He just wanted, it was for him, the litmus test is, Hey, what's good for the kids. So uh, it was just a for, for everybody. And uh, it was looking back, it was a really intense, but I didn't feel it as much at the time. So by the time you were graduated from high school, you were well-skilled in tactics. You were part of a staff. You were inspired by a great man. And you learned how to build a culture in football. I mean, you had a doctorate degree in coaching by the time you hit UCLA. I, I really did. And then when I of my, my college uh, uh, experience at UCLA, Long story, the uh, uh, NFL scouting co- combine called Blesto Scouting Combine, and they lost their area scout for the Southern California area. And so through my affiliation and coaching with with that Los Gatos High program, and they knew that I was down here and they knew I'd been taught. I didn't know if I knew anything, but I, I should have I was at least taught some things about football. I was hired as a scout in the NFL and I worked in the NFL as a local area scout for about five, six, seven years. And that was mostly just on weekends. So I kind of continued to stay, keeping my fingers in the game throughout my, my twenties. Uh, um, but I wasn't coaching. I was just film and, and giving a player evaluations for various NFL teams. So did you discover anybody? Tell us some of the people you scouted. Now, I will tell you the one, and I knew him at UCLA. I did. The best write-up I did was from a wide receiver, and I think he was with the Rams. And this was a, going a long time back, but they had a Plan B free agency. And there was a re- Flipper Anderson. And oh, I yes. Was, and I knew he was going to explode on the scene. And I did my write-up, and, and they re-signed him. They re-signed him. And he, I think at one point he had the record for the most yards in the NFL. Um, and, and that was the one where I, I gave a write-up and I knew his game very, very well. And I think that evaluation was circulated and that might've been impactful. You know, Jim, other than that, I'm sure I did my evaluations and they were thrown in the trash can. I mean, there were a lot of people knew a, a lot about uh, football more than I did at, at that time. Yeah, because Flipper Anderson, I know that at one point that he, I think um, Everett was throwing to him. Chris Everett was throwing to him, and he set the record for the most reception yards in a game ever by by an NFL player. He had like 350 yards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, crazy. Wow. So you scouted him. So you must have taught him everything he knew, right? Uh, no, because what he knew was to run a four three forty. You can't you can't go speed. So this is this has been re- a very interesting digression. So tell us how you got involved with CDM football, please. You know, I I had I think somebody knew in the I can't remember um, Jim, but I think somebody knew that I had a little bit of a background, and then I had a pal through business named Bucky Gillette, who and if you recall, remember Bucky. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Bucky worked in commercial real estate, so he kept bang, and then I had a couple dads dad. bang on me and said, hey, need more coaches." Well, I just didn't have 
but I said, well, maybe. So that's, and I, I finally acquiesced. So that was, I remember that was Matt's freshman year because he was your coach. You were his coach along with Gary Almquist and some others. What are some memories? So you show up your first day. Are you confident that you can handle this? Are you squeamish? I mean, what are your insecurities and confidences walking into that first day of practice? You know, I actually had no preconceived ideas other than I love the game. And um, I knew enough of the kids around that they're all good kids. Um, I The first practice, my first impression was that the, the existing program probably wasn't as intense as I was used to. And I had to, um, I was just trying to figure out, hey, how can I help? without stepping on anybody's toes. That's kind of what I was trying to do at the beginning. Um, just because I had been a part of a couple of successful programs and knew how to emulate that, but you know, new guy in, there's nothing worse than, than coming in with a bunch of ideas. So I was just trying to, you know, listen at the beginning and prove to everybody that I was going to be on time and a hard worker and, uh, that I wasn't going to be, uh, you know, a jerk to the kids. And then kind of slowly but surely, when I'd have some ideas, um, you know, Gary was a very, very secure guy. And by the end, he's saying, hey, well, why don't you do it this way? And why don't you do it your way? And Bucky was the same way. So I probably maybe had a little more influence as that year went on. Um, but right at the beginning, I got there and, and said, OK, these are great kids. Um, you know, coaching kids in Corona Lamar is really easy. You get 100% so? attendance. Well, you get 100% yeah. attendance. The kids are well-fed. They, they show up on time. They don't have excuses. They are, they're not going to have to miss a game due to grades or behavior. So a lot of the issues that, um, that a lot of high schools have to deal with, they don't even come into play in, at Colonel Morris. You know, there's, it's a very driven um community and the parents really back the coaches and if if a coach is confident and competent most of the parents just say hey kids shut your mouth and do what the coaches tell you so that's I, we've we've just had really highly motivated kids who are present and ambitious and hardworking. so that's a pretty good recipe for uh for a successful experience yeah i mean that is, there is that success, you know, that, that the, you know, the kids come from, you know, accountable cultures and, and households and, you know, the, the, you know, and the, the, the parents are certainly invested in the success of the kids, but there's the other side of the coin where, first of all, there's not a lot of kids. Okay. Because it's a small school. Also too, is you don't, you have some athletic ability, but not a ton. So, so that's, that's interesting. So tell us your memories from your first year as coach. Is there like, tell us about some of the kids or some of the plays or what you learned. I mean, it's just an open mic start. You got it. Well, if you recall that wasn't kind of looking back and, and people say, well, what was your favorite team or what was the best team? And, and any coach 
will tell you, all of them are like kids and you don't have a favorite kid, but your first child is always the most um, new experience and the novelty. So it's uh, the most memorable. And what I remember about is a, they were really close. I would say, you know, 90% of them were, were great friends when they came in and they had a bunch of great personalities uh you know if you gotta if you're gonna spend and this is back when we were doing double days if you get to spend double days with uh the sherburn boy and david moore and grant garrett and fraser anderson and john Schweigert, oh my gosh and um you know just the fun personalities and how confident joyous all those kids were and I know I'm leaving a bunch of them out because they were all fabulous. Uh, Hunter Molnar and Matt English and Brent and Eric Fisher and all those kids were just so doggone um, that it was a really happy, happy, happy experience. So there was always because um, football's a grind and practicing is a grind, but those kids love to be with each other and they they love to get after it and they love to compete. So it was pretty easy to, to get close to that first group. That was a ton of fun. And I'll bet you learned a lot from that group because, you know, you got to, you, you know, that group was your, like you said, your first one. It was experimental. So you were kind of kicking the tires and getting to know coaching again with a group of really gregarious, fun kids. So that must have been. Very it was gratifying, awesome, Jim. It was uh-huh. so gratifying. It was so fun. And it also, so my oldest child was two years younger than that class. So I kind of knew these guys, but not really. But it was a, a really fun entree into a group of older kids. And I saw what was coming down from a parent standpoint, what was coming down for the pike. And I was really excited about it because these guys, there weren't a lot of wallflowers in that crew. Even the kids who were quiet were a ton of fun. You know, Josh yeah. Geiger didn't say two words to me uh, in in the entire year, but that's the greatest kid in the world. He is a great kid. And by the way, you know, he's going out with a Laker girl right now. I know. <laughs> so so he's he well, of also course he is. He, he's the best looking guy ever. Of course he is. He is. He and, is. and I know her. She's great, too. She's a wonderful gal. Yeah. Yeah. So she's friends with my so, daughter. I remember the first game that Matt ever played, and that was against Costa Mesa's freshman year. And it was so much fun watching these kids. I mean, because they were on fire. They were so excited to get out there. What are some of your memories about some of the kids? Any stories you want to tell? You know, no, I just look, yeah, looking back, I will tell you those kids. I don't even know. Did a lot of them play um, Pop Warner or Junior All American, Jim? A lot of them did not. Yeah, because I remember it seemed like a fairly inexperienced tackle football team. What I remember is they were a bunch of mean, tough kids who kicked the snot out of people. I remember how hard they hit. And remember a young guy, and he didn't shop at CDM, but his name was Jack Kanan. Oh, yes, absolutely. That kid, he was violent. And Grant Garrett and Dave Moore, and when Eric Fisher ran the ball, he was so violent. Um, 
that was just a bunch of tough, physically, physically tough kids. And the cool thing for me was, you know, you come in from a school, again, there's affluent by the beach. Every, every kid looks like a, a child movie star when they come off the bus. And you, you would think, or the opponents would think that it's going to be a soft, fairly passive group. And we would physically kick the snot out of people. And it was shocking to our opponents. And I loved that. <laughs> that is great. Because I do, I do remember thinking, because, okay, first of all, the freshman year, we were probably, what, uh, nine and two, maybe? Well, I think we played 10 games. And I don't know. We might have been eight and two. Eight and two. Um, okay. Yeah. It, but yeah. I, we put up points. We had a ton of fun. We did. And that was because I remember, I do remember that. And I remember, because I remember Matt's first game and he was just so excited. And I have to tell you, he was excited to go to practice in the dog days of summer. Oh, okay. Double days? Yes. We don't do double they, days anymore. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. You know, it, there's a CIF rule, and they passed. You can only have so many hours of practice per week, and Colonel Moore actually follows the rules. So it just doesn't double days anymore. You just you have to have them too short. So, um, But I remember I took, you know, I had to take the week off for double days uh, from my work, which was probably not the – the most prudent thing to do, but it's kind of the only way you could do it. But um, yeah, those kids, you'd be a Thursday after four days of double days, three hour practices each in the afternoon, it's 92 degrees and they would all show up ready to go. It was fun. Yeah. it's So that's a, you know, that's a combination of a lot of things. And, you know, football is so interesting because it is a confluence of so many different factors that breeds success, but the fact that they were having fun in the dog days of summer, I mean, these are kids that grew up at the beach and yes. these are kids that, you know, could spend the entire day in the water, but you had all these kids, all, you know, my Matt couldn't wait to get back to practice. Wow. I mean, even I, in the afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just a good fun group of kids. So you got to watch this team develop into the first, really. So this was the initial team that won the CIF championship as seniors. Okay, correct. So you watched them de develop throughout Over the their new time. regime. Yes, yes. And you saw the improvement. What are your What are your memories of about that? Because when that team was a sophomore, they weren't very good. But then their junior year, I believe it was this, they made it to the semifinals and Correct. then won it their senior year. What are your thoughts, memories, stories? It's an open mic. Tell us about. Yeah. You know, you know it's because their sophomore year, the pro it just the, the upper level programs, quite frankly, were just weren't where they are now. And so I was a little bit heartbroken in that um, you, you saw this talent and you wanted to have it keep accelerating. What I was most proud of is they all stuck with it. And I think the kids got at a 
at a, a younger age that he, uh, the football's an experience. It's just not about the wins and losses. So they stuck together. Their, their friendships and those bonds are tight. And again, I think that sophomore year was probably pretty tough. The junior, their junior year was obviously a lot better. Um, and they were, there were some kids, I know Matt started as a junior. There were some kids who were really, really good as juniors who didn't play as much as they should have, or as they wanted to. And so they came back, those guys, when they came back as a senior, they were, they were a bunch of rabid dogs and they were ready to go. Um, so the, uh, I, I just was they stuck with it and they not only stuck with it and grinded it through for those guys, they didn't grind it through. They laughed their way through it and they had joy their way through it, which was so admirable because, um, they just kind of kept doing what they did with a bunch of good pals and, uh, they made their own experience and then they were rewarded their senior year with a really, really good staff. Uh, who led them to the to the finals and won in a fabulous game. So that will always be that class will always be special for anybody who's been involved with the resurgence of Cronomar football. Yeah, and you could, you know, I, you know, obviously I was emotionally invested in this, you know, because, you know, my son was, you know, part of the was a part of the team, but I remember that 2011 team and in our league was Beckman, right? And yes. I think that you could make an argument that um, Beckman had more talent oh, than we did. There, 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 no, there was no argument. They had significantly better talent. So how did we beat them? Because we lost to them in one of the league games, right? Yeah, we got we got rolled. We were down a points in I'll tell you what happened was the, the kids never came up. Remember Cole Cottrell had like 900 yards and kickoff and punt returns that game. And I think we were yes. down by 35 at one point, literally we were down by 35 and the kids just kept going and going and going and made this miraculous comeback. And I think we ended up not getting an onside kick by seven, but um, that was a real, real big, uh, turning point in terms from the coach's standpoint, like, oh my gosh, this is a special group of kids. Can't tell them or keep fighting. They're going to keep fighting regardless. And so um, it's hard to beat in football. It's hard to beat a team twice. And so we knew what they were going to do and we were fairly prepared for it. And we quite frankly out executed them. And our boys believed a little bit more, and it sounds so trite, but they kept they stuck through it in the staff game. And we were better coached at that point. We were just better coached. So um, they came out in a double wing in that first game and got us, and we weren't prepared for it. So we knew what all their tricks were going to be, and we were prepared for it. We also came up with a couple of special plays. I remember Kevin Hedig called that that big play that broke open the game to Josh Geiger when Brent rolled out and threw a fake flood and he, he cut back across the middle of the field. They had a good free safety who we knew was going to drive every flood route. And Kevin said, right, as he called the play, he goes, 
uh, we're going to either win or lose this championship on this play. And I think Josh caught a 60-yard touchdown on that, and it really, really opened up the uh, that game. That's funny because, you know, I'm, I'm really good friends with his father, Jeff Geiger, and we're good. You know, we, we hang out a lot together. And I remember Jeff asking the summer – of 2011 before the championship game he goes I don't know what they're going to do with Josh I don't think he's going to say see any playing time and I'm like you know the kid is fast and he's quick and yeah he was very find quick. a spot for him yeah yeah and, and he did it and you know it was funny so you were talking about it when I was on the, I was on the chain gang during the first Beckman game right and so the the coaches, you know, which makes you on the Beckman sideline because we were playing at home. So I was on the Beckman sideline and they kept punting the ball and kicking off to Cole Cottrell, who was dazzling. He was yes. dazzling. I mean, he was so quick and he I mean, he was he had an incredible amount of return yards, both punting and um and uh, and kickoff receiving and i remember i remember the coach and i don't know his name going to his assistants on the last punt that went to cole that where he almost scored he ran down the sidelines and almost scored and so the coach goes all right there is no way we're going to kick off to control there's no way we're not going to do it we're going to avoid it just pooch the kick. And so the, for some reason, it didn't get down to the to the to either the punter or the kicker. So he kicked it, and it went right to Cole again. And I thought that the coach at Beckman, I thought his head was going to explode because <laughs> Cole was unstoppable. It was so funny. But, yes, yes because the, the game that we won at Orange Coast College where we beat Beckman, what was so that was a one point game, right? Yeah, it was. Um, I'll tell you, it was 14 to seven, and Beckman came back and scored with you know, with under a minute left, so it's 14 13. And if you remember, they went for two, and we stuffed them on the, the inch line, and so the final was 14 13. Unbelievable game, huh? Unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. It was a great game. A lot of fun. It was great. I had it, if you recall, and actually one of the reasons why Josh Geiger was was uh, got to be so um, featured on offense, you remember my nephew Ryan, who was um, just young, he really hadn't hit his growth spurt yet, but they were, they finally got confidence in him and they moved him to corner and it allowed Josh to play time offense, and he really excelled there. But my nephew Ryan was was really really impactful on that, and uh, played great. So I had my nephew there, and then my son Charlie was a sophomore, and he played a lot. He was a real impactful guy as a sophomore, and forged friendships with those guys who he all looks at all those guys as his big brother right now, just because of the the bond and the intensity of that season. So. For me, I was coaching. I got to watch my son. I got to watch my nephew and all these kids that grew up in the neighborhood. That was a blast. Yeah, I'll bet. 
you know, and it's just, you know, it was like a couple of things, a couple of memories are flooding back here. Is I remember Matt telling me, he goes that um, Aaron Aaron White, you remember him, right? Gosh, yeah, that's another name. Talk about a great personality. He said, Matt said that he was so confident in the locker room that we he made everybody think that they could beat anybody because of his confidence and his leadership and what a great guy he was. Yeah. That's a, uh, and he was a, yeah, he was, had a big personality, but you know, they all had a lot of confidence. I know he was one of the guys that was, that was a, a big leader on that. You know what? One of my, my, um, that, and it reminded me of the scene in animal house. So we went, Last second, I think we got the ball, took a knee, and the game's over. And all the security guards are in their yellow jackets, and the students are jumping the fence at Orange Coast and rushing on the field. And all the security guards are saying, stay back. Nobody come on. All is well. (laughs) And they just got absolutely run over. About 1,500 students. And, hell, I'm sure you were on the field too, Jim. But Hell, yes. There was 2,500 people on the field at the end of that game, which was just hilarious. And we stayed there for about an hour. Jesus. I mean, that was the first CIF football championship since 1989. Yes. At Corona Del Mar. I mean, that is a long drought. Yes. And so a lot of these kids, none of the kids were even alive when they had it. The parents of these groups had never even been to one. So it just the newness and the excitement of that was really, really special. So, Johnny, that was one of the first, in, I, you know, so I'd like you to talk a little bit about this success is that I noticed that that was one of the first teams at Corona Del Mar who had very few players going both ways. Yeah, that was a philosophy that that uh, Scott Meyer and Kevin and, and Dan had, Kevin Hedig and Dan O'Shea, who are still coaching there now. They wanted to work the kids hard, but they were really, really cognizant of how doggone smart all these guys are and how, how they have to study. And hell, every kid's taking five APs. So they really tried to organize their practices to be really efficient, really fast, and then get the kids home so they can eat dinner and study. And one of the ways they did that is they two platooned. So it, essentially they started running it as a college program where you were in offensive meetings or a couple of people went both ways, but not really. And so Essentially, they cut the, the practice time in half. Instead of everybody focusing on offense and then flipping the focus, they had it going simultaneously, and it was just so much more efficient. And their philosophy was, hey, you know, if this kid right now is a six on talent, if he's just focusing on defense, we can get him up to an eight. And we'll live and die with, with a bunch of eights. And they might not be a 10 athletically, but – if they focus on their technique and their assignments, um, we can coach them up and get that kid to be able to play at a level a lot higher than, than maybe someone who's going both ways. It also, it just 
put out a better vibe for the kids because a lot more people were playing, more people were starting, more people were tired, more people were invested. So, and it got the parents involved. The, the practices were just more joyful. When, when that first year, when, when Dan and Kevin coached their first year in spring ball, there were 44 kids. That's not a lot of bodies in your sophomore, junior, and senior class, Jim. No, and now it's not. There's, now there's 110, anywhere from there... you know 90 to 110. That is unbelievable. What a change you're at. Yeah, because, yeah. I, I, you know, another thing, too, is that, is that you know, the temptation to play. I noticed that when, the, you know, the, the people in 2011 that went both ways – was like Cole went both ways, you know, Cole Cottrell. Well, and if, he was, you know, he, if, a if little bit. Paul, though, he played a little bit on offense. And then after the first couple games, he only played defense. He re- rarely, right. rarely, rarely played offense. And that kept everybody fresher as the game went on, especially later into the season. I'm going to fast forward to a CIF playoff game that was at Estancia High School and they played Lompoc. And oh my God. Lomp- Lompoc had three Pac-12 players, three of them, which is a lot for a, a school of that size. Correct. But I have, you know, and we, you know, we were down at the, at the, at the, uh, at the halftime but we came back because we kept sacking the quarterback because all their linemen were tired and their three pack 12 players were exhausted by the end of the game. No, you're totally right. So that's been a great, great um, philosophy. And that's been a big, big part of, you know, how we have been able to be successful. So I love and we've had a couple of special kids come through, Jim, that, that play maybe a little bit more going both ways. But for the most part, we're we're really, really uh, dedicated and committed to to having a, a two platoon team in a perfect world. So how so it's the momentum, you think, of all the success that creates a 44 man roster to a 125 man roster. Is that no, what you think probably, is going on here? I think that. Yeah, no, I think this year it's more like in the mid-90s. But we've had it up to 110 anyways. That's unbelievable. I mean, you know. And so what are your other thoughts from from the 2011 team? You know, um, just kind of a special group of kids. And if you recall, Jim, and we're going to keep it all PG-13, but – it also was a very special group of parents, the newness for the parents, you know, none, none of the parent group had experienced CIF championships and they didn't have a lot of expectations. So some of those post parties were epic. Oh, baby. <laughs> I do. I think I'm still hung over. Yes. I had one <laughs> at my house and I think there's still a couple people hanging out there. They... <laughs> well, you got such a nice house. Nobody wanted to leave. Goodness gracious. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. So is there anything? So we're at we're at the 47 minute podcast and I want to do this. I, you know, I will do this as much as you would like to do this. I love talking Cronin Del Mar football and there's nobody 
that is as knowledgeable historically, hysterically, and tactically as you. Is there anything you would like to say about the 2011 team that you haven't talked about? Any of the players you want to acknowledge? Any stories you want to tell? It's an open mic. Knock yourself out, John. Yeah. I just I have a big smile every time I think about the, that, that group of kids. And I see to this day, we just look at each other and we know it's good. We rent a, uh, my wife and I and our kids always would try to rent a beach house down on 52nd Street in the summers for a week, kind of in between, you know, summer camp and fall camp. And I swear to God, I don't know how he did that. We would check in and we'd look up and there'd be John Swigert with a surfboard. And he'd say, oh, are you staying here for the week? And he knew exactly where we were staying, when we were staying. He'd dump his surfboard in a backpack of clothes, and he'd be with us for four of the six days we were down there. And I still <laughs> run into all those. I still run into all those kids, and I talk to Brent Lawson, who's up in Idaho, and we all keep in touch with each other a lot. And um, you know, you see Matt, you see Grant Garrett, and we talk about the fight he got in his freshman year at Halloween, and how he broke his hand, and. We still tell the stories of that to our freshman kids the night before Halloween. Don't go out and do anything stupid. And they all do. Uh, but it's just a good, fun, special group and big smile on our face. And, you know, you you get attached to all these kids. But there's something very, very fun about that, that first group. And when your first group has as much personality as that crew did, it's, it's pretty doggone special. That is special. I mean, it is so special. I, I can't, you know, and speaking from the parents. Wait a I minute. I'm going to interrupt you, Jim. Would you? What? I know the kids would always go back in time to play that one more high school football game. Hell, they write country songs about it. Would you go back and be a parent for one more high school football game if you could? Oh, God, yes. Okay. And it what would... would be your what would be your Friday routine? Walk me through. You wake up in the morning. Are you nervous? What are you doing? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So what I would do is I would get up and it kind of depends. So if we're talking about the 2011 season, we'll focus yeah, on that. Matt's, one because, Matt's, senior, Matt's senior year. Okay. So, so there would be a group I would get to work. And there would be a group of parents, especially as the season unfolded. We knew we were going to be good. We didn't know how good, but we knew we were going to be good. And as the season unfolded, we all as parents, you know, Geiger, Lawson, who else was on the email trail? Tony Fisher. Uh, Tony Fisher. Yes. Molnar, um, Garrett, Lane. David Moore, Sherburn. Uh, yeah, all, all the all Cattrall. the guys. gosh, those names are awesome. We what we would do is we would all we text each other and email each other, and we'd console each other about how nervous we were because you know the kids, you know the kids don't understand that this is a moment in your life that yes. you have opportunity that you will never have again. I mean, they're just kids just having a good time but the parents get that so i was so nervous man i was i have to tell you during the playoffs i was a virgin in a whorehouse man i love it i love it i was so nervous and so was everybody else 
And, you know, the, the game from a parental standpoint, it's almost better when you're playing because you're an athlete and I was an athlete and, you know, you, you, you know, you, once the, you know, once they, you know, throw the ball up or you hit somebody for the first time, a lot of the nervousness goes away, but not for the parents. They're on pins and needles. And that last game and that last play with Beckman was just the culmination of an incredible high school career for my son. And also, too, there was a huge rivalry between Beckman and CDM as the best play, as the best teams in their division. Yeah, So. Two yeah, years I, in a was, row. I, I was on pins and yeah, because they in the 2000, so 2011, in the 2010 season, they beat us, right? They did. Yes, in the semis. Then they lost to Garden Grove. They beat us in the semis. And that's when, gosh. And they lost to Garden Grove on the, on the very last play of the game when Garden Grove scored a two point conversion. And that's why they went for the two-point conversion. They weren't going to try to tie it up. They were going to try to do the same thing. So, Jim, the, uh, you, you know, obviously, the Duddies. Yes. And they're good pals of mine. And I see them all the time. And we just kind of look at each other. And after 30 seconds, it always comes back to Liam's senior year and how much fun we had and, and whatnot. It's just great. Well, I mean, there's other, there's other players like Chris Evangelitas, right? Yeah. Okay. He was, he was, you know, on special teams, you know, he, he didn't have a illustrious um, athletic career. You know, he was kind of a little kid and, and another one is like that is Alex Beirudi too. Yes. So they stuck with it. They worked hard. They contributed. They showed up at the weight room. You know, and they had their they had their fifteen minutes of glory on the football field in certain situations, sort of like Hoosier when that real little kid hit the free throws yeah. to win it, and they had their opportunity, and those kids got CIF championship rings that nobody can ever take from them. Yeah, and it's it funny, is- Jim, because when the coaches talk about that team or whatnot, you brought up Chris Evangelitas, they admire and respect and and value. Chris, just as much as as uh, Dave Moore, who was the leading tackler, maybe I don't even know, but you know what I'm saying. And and I think that's another really unique part of of what Coach. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no question about it that everybody felt special on that team, and I was so happy because you know, yeah, and you you grow up with these kids. You know, and they're not, I mean, you know, you don't have four, 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 three, forty guys. You don't yep. have 300 pound linemen, right? Nope. You, what you have is you have a lot of mid-sized kids, mid-sized athleticism that work together, strove, you know, like cried together, laughed together. You know, they just, they were, it was so it was just so wonderful, the culmination of the friendship and the hard work and everything they did to win that championship, how they depended upon each other, how they loved each other. I mean, I hate to get, like, emotional, 
But, you know, usually when I'm, you know, I usually get the people on my cast to be emotional as opposed to the host being emotional. But that was one of the best times of my life is not only because of my son, because of all of his friends, all the coaching, the stuff that you did. I mean, it was unbelievable. Unbelievable. A lot of fun. Hey, let's do this, Jim, if it's if I, it's not too presumptuous or I'm not sounding overly douchey. Let's uh let's do a, a weekly and I'll and I'll tell you about the 2022 Sea Kings after their games and then we'll mix in some of the the other teams that we've had over in between uh, 2011 and, and 2022. I love the idea, and you know, offline, you and I can figure this out. And Johnny, this was such a great walk down memory lane that I thank you. I thank you for coming it's- on. Jim, it's funny. Um, so my youngest is playing football up at Cal Poly and he came down and, and uh, he met Kevin Hedig and I and, and uh, who were golfing and he met us for a little dinner. And then we had, there's actually just our kids happened to be there, Ethan Garbers. And then Jim Lawson was there. Dave Moore was there. And all of a sudden there's this big table and then we're driving home. And my son, Tommy looked at me and said, Hey dad, um, how come whenever there's more than two males uh, in a table after about five minutes, the topic goes to high school football and they stick on it. <laughs> I said, you know what, as sick and as, as, as crazy that is, you're actually kind of right. <laughs> I mean, it, it's true. I mean, the parents will remember this as long as the kids will remember this. Absolutely. Johnny. All right. Hey, let's run this back, Jim English. That's a ton of fun. I got a big smile on my face right now. That is great. And, you know, thanks for the walk down memory lane. And I know you don't like to, you know, but, you know, you were one of the big contributors to this culture and success. And for all the parents that relish the 2011, we want to thank you. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to you buying me a beer in uh, finally after 15 years or however long it's been. <laughs> I think I can get around to that, John. Thank you there for we showing go. up. Such and a pleasure. Thank you, thank you for everybody for listening. Have a good day. All right, Jim.